0: Amen. Thank you, multi-generational choir singing for us this morning. Thank, thankful for the children to be involved, and uh, what a profound song! And so, with that, that's a bit of a, a teaser as well, I suppose. Tonight, uh, you'll want to come back six o'clock uh, as uh, we have uh, our Christmas concert. Uh, last week was phenomenal. If you were with us, you know what a blessing. Uh, our music ministry is, and so you'll want to make sure that you come back tonight, 6 o'clock, and uh, you'll, have, you'll hear a variety from, from the children, from the choir, the handbells will be playing, uh, there'll be some solos, and so you'll, you'll want to make uh, every effort to be back tonight, 6 o'clock, and uh, we will look forward to our time of worship together. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We will begin in verse 67. Luke chapter 1. As you're turning there, I do want to remind you again about our schedule change for next Sunday, Christmas Eve, the 24th. We'll not have Sunday school, but we will have our worship service at 10 o'clock. All right, so next Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. If you show up and say you only wanted to hear the preaching, I'll know that's not true. You came late, all right? You got here at 10.30 and you didn't remember. Okay, so don't let that happen to you. Next Sunday, 10 o'clock, we'll worship together. Then we'll come back together at 4 for our Christmas Eve service, our Christmas Eve evening service uh, where we'll take the Lord's Supper together. We will have a candlelight service as well. So make, make those plans to be a part of our day of worship next Sunday. And just be mindful of those changes. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet. Into the way of peace. I think he could be the most underappreciated character in the Christmas story. I'm not exactly sure why. But in many ways, Zacharias kind of plays second fiddle to the story of Mary and Joseph, the angels, manger, Wise men. Uh, Maybe some of that is the fact that his his very purpose is to be the father of the one who would play, in essence, second fiddle to Jesus, right? The one who would go beforehand and prepare the way. But I think it's a shame that if if we were to name our favorite Christmas characters, Zacharias doesn't even get a shout out more more often than not. Because really his story is a fascinating one. Zacharias gets to talk to an angel. Zacharias is part of a miraculous birth. And Zacharias, just, just like Mary and Joseph, Zacharias and Elizabeth play a significant role in the whole Christmas story and, in fact, in the gospel itself. Though God didn't have to do it this way, He did do it this way so that John the Baptist is necessary for the entirety of the gospel story. This is prophecy fulfilled. So, Zacharias really is a guy that I think is worthy of our attention. And really, his story may be the most fascinating of all of the stories. It kind of puts yourself back for a minute. You're back in the first century, and you're a priest. Now, the priests by then numbered in the thousands, thousands upon thousands. Uh, They were all around in the nation of Israel now by this time. And so, not every priest would get a chance to fulfill that ultimate dream job of ministering in the temple. I mean, that's how they were originally designed. For the tabernacle ministry, and then for the temple ministry. But because there were so many, there was not a sure thing that you would necessarily get called up to the big game. All right? You may go your whole ministry and never step foot in the temple, at least not in your official capacity. And Zachariah, he's getting a little long in the tooth, as they say. All right. He has more years behind him than he does have in front of him. His time comes. See, they were grouped, the priests were, and so they rotated. They got it. That's how they tried to get the most priest into the temple to offer their sacrifices and ministries before the Lord. And Zechariah gets called up. You and I don't really appreciate this, but imagine a ref getting to go to the Super Bowl. All right. I mean, this is a big, big deal for Zechariah. Not only does he get to go into the holy place, he also gets probably what's the best job in the holy place. He gets to offer the burnt offering of incense before the Lord. This is one of three pieces of furniture in the holy place, along with the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. And this was the place that represented the prayers of the people going up before God. Zechariah, in this moment, is functioning as a mediator. Between God and the people. This is a big deal. In fact, this is such a big deal that upon completion of Zechariah's ministry in the holy place, here's what he was supposed to do. He was to come out of the temple to the crowd that would have gathered to greet him. And they would have gathered a significant crowd. And so upon coming out, after doing his task in the holy place, Zechariah then would stand before them and would declare blessing. In essence, he would offer... A benediction. But that wasn't going to happen this day. Because something else happens to Zechariah. It's recorded for us in Luke's gospel. As Zechariah is in the temple, in the holy place, ministering before the altar of incense, the angel of the Lord appears. And what does the angel of the Lord have to do every time the angel of the Lord appears? He has to say, Do not fear. Do not fear. Just a little uh, side note here. Angels did not look like Roma Downey. All right? They weren't sweet, pretty. They didn't look like big fat babies on clouds. All right? That's not what angels looked like. Angels were terrifying servants of the Lord that literally had the glory of God draped on them. Every time an angel shows up, that angel has to say, do not fear. Because what's your first response to a fiery servant of the Lord? Fear. And if you're a priest in the temple and you see an angel of the Lord, guess what you're thinking? Fireball coming my way. All right? That's what you're thinking. I've done something wrong. There's a God-ordained lightning bolt coming in about two seconds. So do not fear. And then Zechariah hears this incredible message. Just like Mary, though not quite the same, but similar, he hears the message, Zechariah, you're going to be the father of a son. The son who would fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The final prophet. After 400 years of silence, a prophet is going to be born to you. One like Elijah. One who will prepare the way for the Messiah. What does Zechariah do? Great! Does he bow and say, thank God for this gift? No. What does he say? I'm an old man. And I'm married to an old woman. All right. Got some explaining to do. I don't know how this is supposed to happen. Now, this is not the first time that there's been this kind of response I mean, Mary wondered, how can this be since I've never known a man? Really, Abraham and Sarah had the same response. Isaac had the same response. Hannah had the same response. In other words, these are not uncommon. But something's different about Zechariah. Because for those other folks, God gives them another shot. But for Zechariah, perhaps because he's a priest and he should have known better, Zechariah is viewed as being insubordinate and the angel causes him to go mute for nine months and eight days. Some of you ladies are thinking, wow, right? I know, I know you are. You don't want to say it, but I know what you're thinking. Wow, Elizabeth, what a lucky woman. All right, but so for nine months, nine months, he can't speak. In fact, when he's done in the temple and comes out, he cannot utter his benediction for nine months and eight days during that time what does he see he sees Mary come through the door he sees now Elizabeth pregnant right and he, he, he can't say anything but he knows the story that that baby John leaps in Elizabeth's womb upon greeting the mother of the Lord and they have this great back and forth don't they and Mary offers this great song. Don't you know a guy who in essence functioned like a pastor was dying to say something? Nothing. Nothing. In fact, baby's born. Still nothing. Can't say a word. Eight days after birth, according to the custom, Zachariah and Elizabeth bring baby John He's circumcised it's at this point where he is formally given his name. He's asked, they're asked the question, what are you going to name the baby? And Elizabeth has to respond. Zachariah can't speak. Ma- Elizabeth has to respond and says, we're going to name him John. This is a big deal. In fact, they say in the text just before the one that we read, aren't you going to name him Zachariah? I mean, just, shouldn't you name him a family name? That was tradition. They are so concerned about Elizabeth's response, assuming that maybe she's taking advantage of her husband's condition. That they get his attention. Right? Zachariah. They call for a writing tablet. Now not like an iPad. Alright? We're not exactly sure what this was. Perhaps even just a piece of wood. With some kind of material they could use to write on. And they ask Zachariah. What's his name? You shall call him John. And the Bible says in that moment. Zachariah's tongue is loosed after nine months and eight days after coming out of the temple, having that moment that only comes once in a priest's lifetime, unable to offer his benediction. How does he begin his very first words? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The Latin translation of that is benedictus. And that is what this song is traditionally called. Zachariah's benediction. It just comes nine months and eight days late. But here he is finally able to offer this song of praise to the Lord. And much like Mary, Zachariah offers to us a profound song. A song that, that really does speak to the goodness of God and the plan of salvation and bringing the Messiah and the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Now, if you look at the psalm, it it really comes in two parts. What we just read there, verses 67 through verse 75, Zechariah is going to address specifically the Messiah. Then in the last half of that, he addresses his own son, Though even in addressing his now uh, named son, now with his tongue loosed, he issues a prophecy over this one who would be the last Old Testament prophet. And still, though, in these words, it's not about John. It's about the one who would come after John. It's about the one that John himself, we would say, I'm unworthy to tie his shoes. It's the one that John would say, he must increase and I must decrease. It's going to be about the one that John himself would point at and say, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the earth. And the Bible says that when he says that, his own disciples leave him to go follow Jesus. In other words, Zechariah crashed for us another theological reflection on what's going on here with these birth stories about the coming of Christ. And so this morning we're going to take a look and we'll finish it up again tonight. Uh, as I'll have a few minutes uh, in, in the midst of our concert to think about this. But we'll see uh, see what we do this morning, and then we'll finish it up tonight. So Zechariah uh, composes this song, again, much like Mary's song, uh, as a way to draw attention to what I think are essential features of God's gracious intervention for the birth of Christ. And so there are at least three. Now, here's what's interesting, though, about Zechariah's song unlike Mary's, I think Zechariah, though, with everything he says, calls for a response from us, from the listener. Not unusual for a benediction, by the way, for a benediction to declare then something God has done and then to exhort the then the listener to go do something with that. And so Zechariah's song does this. It really does function very much as a benediction in terms of the way uh, the text flows. So we're going to look at three realities here. Uh, hopefully we'll get uh, to two of them and finish uh, another one up tonight. So what what is the message of Christmas that's illustrated here in the Benedictus? Number one, in Christ, God has come to redeem us that we might worship him. In Christ, we have this redemption from God. And, and this redemption, this rescue, uh, this salvation is designed to make us worshipers. In fact, the song begins with a statement of worship, verse sixty-eight: "Blessed is the Lord God of Israel." Now, now to say that doesn't mean, you know, sometimes if you look at somebody who's well off, and you may say, "Wow, that individual is blessed." That's not exactly the way this term's used here. When when we offer that to the Lord. It would sound kind of weird to say God is well off, wouldn't it? In other words, to say God is blessed is to say he's worthy of blessing. In other words, he is one who is to be praised with my lips. I, I am to declare his goodness and his greatness. I'm to offer blessings, statements of praise and worship and gratitude to the Lord. So when he begins, that's what, that's what he's saying. So, so blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For what reason? For he has visited And redeemed His people. This, by the way, is Zechariah's thesis statement. Like Mary beginning, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is the main thrust of what he's saying. God is a God who is to be blessed. Because in all of this, the birth of Christ, the Messiah to come, not yet to be born, but soon. And in the birth of John, this is... A real-life, literal visitation of God. And Notice how he combines these two ideas. He has visited us and redeemed. He's visited and redeemed his people. Now, let let me again do a bit of the nerdy grammar stuff. By the way, I was called out last week for me saying I'm about to do nerdy grammar stuff, and it wasn't nerdy enough, okay? All right? In other words, I just said, well, the way Mary speaks, she she speaks with the past tense. All right, so you ready for nerdy stuff? All right? Not that I'd call out my dentist, but he may have been the one who said it. All right? So, you ready for nerdy grammar stuff? This, when, when he speaks, he does the same thing Mary does, and he speaks in the prophetic aorist. How about that? Is that better? All right, good. All right. The You can, you can impress people at Christmas parties. When you get a chance. I don't know how you work it in, by the way. You can figure that out, okay? In other words, you know, you're drinking eggnog. Not spiked eggnog. All right, you're drinking eggnog. And you work it in. By the way, did you know that the songs in Luke's gospel are all in the prophetic heiress tense? All right? You know how smart you'd sound? I mean, everybody would be like, wow, that person really knows something. All right? But this is significant. Because to speak in the past tense, when declaring something, That has not yet been completely fulfilled. That's what he's doing here. It's what Mary did. And we'll see it all throughout. He's going to make these statements about what God has done. Because this points to what is a profound theological truth. All of God's promises are past tense. You may have to ponder on that one for a little while. This means every time God makes a promise, in whatever way God has made a promise, it can always be spoken of as if it's already been fulfilled, even if it hasn't been all the way fulfilled. In other words, I can say something like, I've gone to heaven. I, I don't mean like weird little four-year-old boy going to heaven or kind of stuff. All right, I mean like, I can say, I've gone to heaven. I can say, I'm in heaven. I've been fully healed. I can say stuff like that. Even though I may still yet get sick and I'm still going to physically die and living here, though I enjoy life, it's certainly far less than what glory will be. But because salvation is God's promise and guarantee of my eternity. I can speak as if it's already happened. I've already gone. That's what he's doing here. When he talks about this, When He so in, the, in light of John's birth, He's saying, blessed is God because he's visited and redeemed us. And now, for those of us on this side of the cross who have all of the New Testament, John's words also have much greater weight because John is talking, I mean, Zachariah is talking about the incarnation. I don't know that he knows it to the fullness of what it is, but he is talking about literally God visiting us that when Jesus is born, this is God in the flesh. We just read it from Hebrews chapter one. Did you catch the language that was that was read? It's so specific when it says that he is the exact imprint of God. Listen to me, church. I know, I know this sounds like old hat. I know you probably hear this every Christmas, but keep on coming. You're going to hear it here on after, alright? Because this is a critical part of the story that we cannot get wrong. When we talk about the baby who's been born, we are talking about one who is fully God and fully man. He's 100% God as if he were no man. He's 100% man as if he were no God. How does that work out? Because God is God. All right, that's how it works out. In other words, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. This is not just some super-duper spiritual man that God saw and thought, Wow, he'll be great. Why don't I pick him? By the way, there are those who believe this. It's called adoptionism, All right, In other words, that God adopted Jesus to be the Savior. Uh Uh-uh. It's not how it works. No, this was all God's plan. And the work of Christ coming to earth. It's God visiting us. As I mentioned last week, this should be an important reminder to us how bad off we were. And are. That the only way The only way to save us is for God to come down and do it himself. We've got to be a mess, right? I mean, we've got to be a mess if that's what's required. This, by the way, is Jeremiah's prophecy. Where God says, I will come down. And I will shepherd my people. This is what's being fulfilled here. It's this promise of redemption. That in in this, God has visited, come down, and come down in order to redeem. To redeem us. To to purchase us. This, by the way, goes back to Egypt. This is is an allusion to what God did uh, when he rescued Israel out of Egypt, when he redeemed them, when he purchased them. This is what God's doing in the gospel: he's purchasing us, he's paying for us what was the payment? The very blood and life of Jesus Christ. Of this sweet little baby boy that's going to be born. He's born for one purpose. To be a sacrifice. To be a sacrifice for what? For who? For you. For me. To bear His body punishment for sin. He did not commit. So that you and I would be granted righteousness that we cannot earn. That in Him we've been redeemed. He's visited and redeemed us for what purpose? That we might be worshipers. I mean, He begins with a word of worship. Blessed be the Lord God. He's visited us and redeemed us. The only way we can worship God in His glory in a way He deserves is first for Him to visit us and redeem us. And this is what is being fulfilled here in the Christmas story. All right, let me give you number two. And that is that in Christ, God has come to deliver us that we might serve him. Redeem us that we might worship him. Deliver us that we might serve him. Now, look at verse 69. See, here's what Zechariah is going to do. He's now going to make two more Old Testament allusions. The covenant God makes with David. The covenant God makes with Abraham. Which, by the way, is really profound. Because this demonstrates all that's going on here is not God's plan B. You do know God never has a plan B, right? It's not like he started this whole thing and thought, my goodness, that was a train wreck. Uh, the whole Israel, law, Moses deal. Swing swinging a miss on that one. Let's try something else. Maybe the Jesus thing will work better. God doesn't have a plan B. In fact, you wouldn't even say God has a plan A. God just has a plan. And everything happens, Ephesians 1.11, according to the counsel of his will. Zechariah has given us great perspective. You go all the way back. This has always been God's plan. You go all the way back. Everything in the Old Testament was merely leading up to this. This has always been what God's doing, underlying it all. This is what the religious leaders don't get. This is why Jesus is always harping on them, that they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand their Old Testament. Because they don't see how all these things point to him. So Zechariah is, again, just making this plain. And so he says in verse 69, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That, by the way, is language of power. That's language of authority. That's like a king coming in rescue of his people. All right. Raised up a horn of salvation for us. And then notice this phrase. This, by the way, if you're wondering, how do you know he's talking about Jesus and not about John the Baptist? Because of this phrase. In the house of his servant David. Guess who's not of the house of David? Zechariah and Elizabeth. Who else could this be? You say, well, why would he know about that? Well, because for three months, Zechariah sat in his house while two women talked about it. Ladies, I know this is going to be offensive. But men, we understand he got an earful, right? All right? He got an earful, okay? So he heard plenty of stuff from these two women. Who had experienced miraculous things. Not the least of which. This is going to be the birth of the Messiah. I mean, even Elizabeth said, why am I so blessed that I should greet in my own home the mother of my Lord? Zechariah was well aware of what's happening. Can't say anything about it till now. So now Zechariah finally gets to add his two cents worth here. God's raised up this horn of salvation for us. And notice what it says in verse 70. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. It really is quite a string that he puts together here. So, so, so he brings out the covenant with David. The, the promise that was made to David was that he would, he would be a forever king on a forever throne, his descendant. This prophecy, by the way, is passed on to Solomon when David anoints, Solomon as his successor. Similar language is used. That this would be a forever king on a forever throne. And when the angel speaks to Mary and tells her about this Christ, what does he say about her? And, and he will sit on the throne of David. He'll occupy a forever throne as a forever king. So this is the prophecy made to David. This is the covenant God made with David. Now being fulfilled in Christ, it's interesting This phrase, and then when he goes on and he talks about Abraham, talks about this covenant God made with Abraham. So he not only goes back to David, he goes all the way back to the beginning. And says, God's made this promise, and and in his mercy, he kept his word that he made to our forefathers, even to Abraham. And what is that promise, both for David and both for Abraham? That we would be rescued, we would be delivered from our enemies. Now, here's where we've got to do a bit of theological work. Because Zechariah, like a lot of them, like even the disciples, when they hear this kind of stuff, what do they think? Man, we're going to stick it to the Romans, right? I mean, that's kind of what's going on here, especially if there are allusions being made to Israel and Egypt, right? Perhaps they're thinking maybe there's a plague or two coming, all right? That would be really helpful for us to work this thing along. And so, Zechariah probably has some nationalistic hopes in mind. We'll be delivered from our enemies. Those who hate us, finally, will face the judgment of God. Now, does this happen like this? Well, not right away, right? And in fact, the life in Rome under Roman law and rule... Meant that the that the Jews were not their own nation. They still had it pretty good. I mean, it wasn't like being in Egypt, all right? They were not they weren't slaves to the Romans. They they weren't they weren't building you know the 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 great works. They weren't building the aqueducts. You know, in other words, they weren't they weren't working like they were for the Egyptians. This was not necessarily oppressive. Really, they had quite a bit of freedom. In fact, we know they were allowed to govern themselves all the way to the point of what? They couldn't execute anybody. But otherwise, they kind of ran themselves. Romans were fine to let them do this. So when he talks this way, this certainly is a hope. All right, the Davidic kingdom is going to come back, right? Now we're going to once again rule and power and authority. And you can tell the disciples were hoping for this kind of nationalistic revival to happen. That's not what he's talking about. I mean, maybe that's what he's thinking about, but that's not... Remember, this is a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. So what is going on here? Something that happens in a lot of prophecies, the now and the not yet. When he talks about being delivered from the enemies, initially this is somewhat metaphorical and symbolic. What is the greatest enemy of mankind? Sin? Death? Maybe even Satan himself? In other words, this is the imagery that I think is really most applicable initially, that what's going on with the birth of Christ? Well, that our greatest enemy has been defeated. That, that, that in Christ, death, where is your sting, right? That there is victory in him. We have been delivered from this enemy. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been delivered from death to life. doesn't I mean I won't die physically, but the, but the ultimate consequence of death, in other words, forever death. Separated forever from God. Is no longer a threat to those who know Christ. However we should say this. Because Zechariah is speaking just like Mary. In the prophetic heiress tense. All of God's promises. Are past tense. And here's what this means. One day every bit of what Zechariah says here will come literally true. Our Savior sits on a forever throne. He is a forever king. And understand this, church. Every time you turn on the news, you see some new kind of threat to Christianity. And I'm here to tell you, as intimidating and fearful as it might seem to us, and as we see men in hoods, in black, taking the lives of Christians. Understand, ISIS is like a little tiny kitty cat, all right? Toothless and unable to do anything. They might be able to take my head off, but they can't take my soul. And Jesus is still in charge. And one day, make no mistake about this church, one day this sweet little baby will come again. But he won't be a little baby. He'll have the almighty sword of God in his hand. He'll come on a horse. He'll break the eastern sky. And all who dare to profane the name of Christ will bow in submission before this Savior. This is the promise Zechariah is making. He doesn't know it like we do. In other words, we have the benefit of the fullness of the progressiveness of God's revelation. We have, the, we have it all in the Word. Okay, So we can look back and we can see, yes, this is all going to happen. Just as he said. Just as he promised to Abraham. As he promised to David, all of God's promises are past tense. In Christ, God has come to deliver us. And we have been delivered. But as we conclude here this morning, notice for the specific reason why. that We might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Now, this is interesting. By the way, this is another reason why you've got to read the text in context. Because Mary tells us in her song, we made much of this, that mercy is to those who do what? Fear God. But now what's Zachariah saying? That you might serve him without fear. Well, that's weird. Did did Luke have a senior moment between that chapter and this one? All right. In other words, did he forget what he was writing about? Was is this? Did he have a bad editor? All right. Maybe he didn't reread his stuff. Is that what's going on here? Well, no, because when you're studying the Bible, the first thing you need to do when you read it is make sure you understand the context. Right. Guess what you do then. Guess what the second rule is. You make sure you understand the context. And guess what the third rule is. Hey, check out the context thing. All right, and make sure you get that right. See, what is Mary doing? Mary's talking about the initiation of salvation. Yes. I fear God. I fear what a God of wrath will do to my sin. I humble myself before Him and recognize there's not a thing I can do to save myself. I come before Him in absolute submission, trusting Him and Him alone for the means of salvation in Christ. I do that out of fear. A holy reverence and respect for God. And that holy reverence and respect should continue, even as a believer. But now... Now I can serve him without fear. Without fear of what? Without fear of being consigned to hell. Without fear of absolute judgment. Without fear that I will now know God's wrath. In other words, yes, I fear God. I humble myself in the act of salvation. But now I am raised up and I can come boldly into his presence. That means I can serve with absolute confidence. That's what he means when he says without fear. By the way, keep in mind, Zechariah is a priest. When he says serve, you know what he means? Serve as a priest. He has worship in mind here. He has sacrifice in mind here. This is why when we get to Peter's letter, Peter says, we are priests unto the Lord. In other words, Zechariah is already kind of building this in to what is going to be the work of the Messiah. That functionally, the Messiah makes us all priests unto the Lord. And so I can now serve him. I can minister before him. I can stand in the holy place before the altar of incense. All right, symbolically, metaphorically. Don't go home and build an altar of incense. All right, don't go do that. I mean, you can use potpourri, but but that's not the same thing. All right, don't think you're doing anything spiritual when you do that. So we serve then as a minister before the Lord, and we can do this without fear, and we do it in holiness and righteousness. And one last word here. How long do we have to do this? All the days of our life. All the days of our life. I'm going to make a comment here as we work our way into now a time of invitation. If I end up offending a segment of you, then that's really great. All right, so I would suggest that if you're in a place in life where you are about to or have, Retired from your vocation. You never retire from the gospel. You know how when you, you know. You'll know when you're retired from the gospel. You know how. You see Jesus. That's how you know. You're done. Until then. You serve him without fear. In righteousness and holiness. All the days. Of your life. This is the Christmas story, by the way. Now, Zachariah has made some pretty profound points. I mean, this is what it means to properly respond to what's going on with the birth of Christ. It is a message of salvation, redemption. My response to that redemption should be worship. Let me ask you, are you worshiping this Christmas season? Say, yeah, Pastor, what do you think we've been doing? You know what I mean. I mean, not just offering him lip service. I mean, not just singing songs because they're sweet, nostalgic Christmas songs and we love them. I mean, that's fine if you love them, but that's not... That, you can talk about getting in the Christmas spirit, but you just need to be getting in the spirit, right? Whether it's Christmas or not, you need to be in the spirit. And In, in other words, there needs to be this response of genuine worship to the Lord, because that is your call. The Christmas story tells us we've been delivered. Delivered from our enemies, the enemy of sin and death. And any enemy that threatens the kingdom of God one day will be vanquished. What is my response to that? Service, serving him as a priest, serving before the Lord, all the days of my life. Are you serving the Lord? So, as we have a time of invitation, maybe that would be your response. Maybe you are a believer and you'd say, you know what? No, I've not been worshiping. I've not been serving. You, maybe you'd want to come and pray here. Maybe you'd like me to pray with you. I'd love to do that. Maybe where you are would be an opportunity for you to pray. Of course, I'd also make an appeal to anybody here who's never trusted Christ as Savior. This is where it begins and understand. If you've not yet submitted to the gospel, if you've not yet confessed you're a sinner, believe Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, ask God to save you based on nothing of yourself but only the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If you've never done that, then you should be fearful of an almighty God. You stand before him facing judgment. But it doesn't have to be that way. Submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible promises that in Him you can be saved today. If you'd like to know more about what that means, I'll be right here. would love to pray with you, talk with you. Maybe even after the service you'd like to know more about this. I'd love to do that. How will you respond to God's Word today? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And Then we'll have a time invitation together. Father God, we do thank You for gathering us and thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this song that comes to us from the lips of one of Your priests. We thank You, God, for how it draws us Uh, into the right understanding of what's happening with the birth of Christ. Father, may this be more than just a theological exercise, as critical as that is, but then that would then drive us to worship and obedience and service as you've now equipped us through the gospel, that we might be faithful to you. So we just surrender our lives to you, and this time together, We pray, God, that that we would honor You with our response and that You'd be glorified in it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.